Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, it's me, Amara Jones. Before we get to the heart of our show, I just wanted to urge you to go check out my new PBS docuseries, American Problems, Trans Solutions. Through this docuseries, we show how Black trans leaders are tackling some of the most pressing issues of our time, including affordable housing, trans rights, and the plight of immigrants. And they're doing so with hope and real solutions. So when you have a minute, go to pbs.org, type in American Problems Trans Solutions in the search, sit back, and be inspired. Hey there, it's me, Amara Jones. Welcome to the Translash Podcast, a program where we tell trans stories to save trans lives. Well, we are still deep into LGBTQ History Month, and we at Translash want to continue the conversation about our history, especially at a time when people are telling us that we don't have one and are using that as a basis to try to erase our very existence. And so as you know, we started this month with a conversation with someone who is living history, the legendary Miss Major. But we want to keep our conversation going by looking into the scholarly basis of our history. What does research say about us? And how does that research inform who we are today and where we're going into the future? So I'm excited to talk to two iconic leading trans experts and historians. First, I'm joined by Dr. Susan Stryker, who shares her perspective on the last 100 years of trans activism and life in the United States. And I just hope that being able to offer some kind of, you know, testimony or bear witness about the fact that we have a history is news that people can use about the past in some way that will empower and give them resources for the really dire struggle we are engaged in right now. Next, I'll chat with professor and cultural theorist C. Riley Snorton about the intersection of race and trans identity in this country's history. The ways that Black folks and Black radical folks have built a analysis around the police, an analysis of abolition, is also deeply rooted in the histories and the stories of Black trans people who've come well before us. And just a heads up that I had some technical difficulties with my microphone during my conversation with Dr. Susan Stryker. So you may notice that I sound a little different than usual, but it's still me. So with that, let's start out, as always, with some trans joy.
When you think of trans history, you might picture places like New York City or San Francisco in the 1960s. But our community's story has been shaped by people all across this country, from coastal cities to rural towns. Launched in the beginning of the pandemic, the Louisiana Trans Oral History Project documented and preserved the stories of trans and gender nonconforming Louisianans in the first 20 years of the 21st century. They interviewed dozens of people across five parishes, worked with the LSU Library to preserve these stories for future generations, and launched three podcasts. Here's one of their members, Sophie Ziegler, to tell us more. We were basically just collecting stories and asking people about their childhoods, about coming out in Louisiana, about what it is that they do as trans people in Louisiana, um, how it is that they find community, how it is that they find joy, what struggles they, they face, and really what they would want somebody in 50 or 60 years listening to their interview to know about life in Louisiana for them. One of the things that I was struck with as the project was going on is that every single interview maybe with the exception of one or two, touched on joy unprovoked. Almost everyone spoke of the joy that comes with being yourself, the joy that comes with building community around transness, around queerness in Louisiana. It was a very life-affirming project. It was really a beautiful way to spend three years. Sophie, you and the Louisiana Trans Oral History Project are Trans Joy. I'm so glad for the chance to talk with iconic historian and professor of gender and sexuality studies, Dr. Susan Stryker. If you've done your trans history reading, as I'm sure all of you have done, then you've probably come across Dr. Stryker's work. She is the author of Transgender History, The Roots of Today's Revolution. It's an influential book that covers our community's history from the mid 20th century to today. Dr. Stryker is also a critical voice in the continued development of transgender studies. She's the founding executive co-editor of TSQ, Transgender Studies Quarterly. She is also the co-editor of the Transgender Studies Reader, which collected critical works in transgender studies together, as well as the Transgender Studies Reader Remix, which was published just last year. And... Not surprisingly, she's even worked in TV and film, including as a co-director of the Emmy-winning documentary Screaming Queens, The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria. Even with all of these impressive accomplishments, Dr. Stryker has some exciting new developments ahead. She is the author of a forthcoming collection of essays titled When Monsters Speak. She's currently the Dorenseith Dean's Visiting Professor of Gender and Sexuality Studies at the University of Southern California, where she'll be joining the faculty in 2024. Dr. Stryker, Susan, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, Amara, it's really great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm wondering for you personally, because this has been your life's work now, if memory serves, I believe that you started to transition when you were doing your graduate studies. And I'm wondering if you can just talk a little bit about how and why you decided that our history was important, because there would have been so many ways that you could have gone and still been a trans woman, but why have you devoted your life to trans history? 
Uh, that's a great question. And yes, you are correct that I transitioned right at the end of my PhD program. I got my PhD from Berkeley in 1992, and I was starting to publicly transition 1991, 92. And why did I go into doing trans history. Well, I mean, I, I did not write my dissertation in trans history. It's like that really wasn't a thing that was possible at the time, I think. Certainly, it didn't feel possible for me. I wasn't quite out yet. It just wasn't a thing in the 80s when I was in grad school in the early 90s to do a dissertation on trans history, partly because I think we actually knew so little at that time. It's like I would have had to have done so much foundational work. It just it just wasn't the moment yet. But yeah, I was always interested in history. Um, I do think it is related to my early childhood awareness of being trans. I'm one of those people who, like, even as a kid, I knew who I thought myself to be. It wasn't until... I was about five that I realized that in the culture that I lived in, my body I was born with carried with it certain expectations of what you would grow up to be that were not the expectations that I formed of myself. I have a very clear memory of when I realized I was trans. I was five. And it was like, you know, WTF, like, what does this mean that I, you know, I'm a girl and I'm not going to grow up to be a woman. It's like, what, what does that even mean? So it made me really curious. I mean, it made me really curious about philosophical questions or spiritual questions, scientific questions. But I always had that a historical question in there too. You know, I learned by the time I was, you know, like 10 or 11 years old, that there was this word transsexual. I thought, oh, like maybe I'm a transsexual. And I, you know, learned some about what possibilities were for changing your body and, you know, your identity. And it planted the question in my mind. It's like, huh, you know, what if there was somebody like me who existed before surgery and hormones were available? It's like, would they still feel the same way? It's like, is this something that's only like a modern idea or... If it's not modern and it's something that's persistent in people, how would people like me live, you know, before you were able to do these like body transformation things? So that's a historical question. So I think partly because of being trans, I always had this set of questions about what is sort of given and trans historical about the way that we are versus what is historically contingent and culturally variable. So those kinds of questions were always in the back of my mind. I think at some level it led me to want to go to graduate school in history. Those are the kinds of questions that interested me. And when it became very clear that I just, I needed to transition if I wanted to, you know, keep being on this earth, that um, there would be consequences for that in terms of what my employment was. You know, let's just say in 1991, it was like not a great career move to come out as trans and try to get a job as a university professor in history. The, you know, discrimination is real. Prejudice and stigma are real. And I knew that I was not going to be able to find regular employment. I mean, I, I tried. I mean, I, I applied for jobs, you know, university teaching jobs 
every year right, for like mm, 17 years. <laughs> it was like my little Zen exercise in uh, trying to find a job that somebody else would give me. And it, you know, it, it took a while. So what do you do? Like, what do you do when you're trans, when that's the first thing that people see about you, when it's a huge access barrier to having any kind of routine life, you know, for, for so many of us. And, you know, what did I know how to do? It's like, well, I knew how to write and think and be a historian. And I thought, well, you know, I'm just going to do what I'm interested in. Um, I'm going to do history. I'm going to do history on trans stuff because that's the piece that the world insists that I kind of be seen through. And, um, and I just started doing it. I started doing it because I was interested. I started doing it because it felt like the work that was right in front of me to do. And I did it largely without pay. I volunteered at a community history archive in San Francisco, the GLBT Historical Society. I found work as a freelance writer. I sold books. I, you know, I just, I, I was a girl who lived by her wits, trying to figure out how to make money doing trans history kind of out in the, the public sphere. So ultimately, the kind of work that I had been doing largely without pay, trying to make my living keep a roof over my head some other way, it ultimately kind of built into a career. You know, uh, I like to think I was just ahead of market. You know, like there's a huge interest in trans history now, and you know, I was starting to do it 30 years ago when not as many people were interested in it. And I feel fortunate, you know, in many ways. Uh, there was certainly hardship involved early on, financial hardship, a lot of doors closed in my face. But I feel fortunate in that I was, in fact, able to do, you know, what the Buddhists would call right livelihood. I, you know, I found a way of using my skills and talents in the world, not only to feel like I was doing something that I was interested in and proud of, but something that ideally would serve other people and that other people could find some use and value in it. Just it, it feels like a, a true calling uh, to do this work. I mean... One of the things that is quite clear is that you've also helped to create the momentum that we live in through the power of your work. So it's not only that it was, as you were saying, I kind of was before the trend, you helped to actually shape the trend, which I think is clear and undeniable. On this particular point of trans history being forefront right now, or the very question of trans history being at the forefront. How do we arrive at the point in the academy and how do we arrive at the point in our society where someone like you was even necessary? That is to say, where the idea of trans people not having a history has been the rule of the day and continues to be the assumption of so many people who are, are actually making laws about us is that we don't have a history, the very opposite of what you've proved through your life's work. Yeah, gosh, there's so much to unpack there. You know, I mean, I, I look back on when I was a, a young person, when I realized that trans people had a history, it was in the later 1970s. And back in the day, Renee Richards, who was a trans woman who was a professional tennis player and got outed, it turns out she got outed by Tucker Carlson's 
father, if you can believe that, who used to be a television news reporter. Oh, I can. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I would see Renee Richards on TV and there'd be newspaper stories about her. And often the newspaper would say something like, Renee Richards, the most famous transsexual since Christine Jorgensen in the 1950s. And it was like, ding, ding, ding. It's like, there were trans people back in the 1950s. It's a real thing. Here is this name, Christine Jorgensen, that I can go and look for. And, you know, now I know a lot about Christine Jorgensen, another mid-20th century trans people. But, you know, for most of my growing up years, even though trans issues like would come up repeatedly, and now, you know, when I look as a historian, it's like, you know, you can find a trans person under every rock you turn over. It's like we are, in fact, ubiquitous in society, but we're kept under wraps, so to speak. It's like we are kept out of sight. We are pushed to the margins. And precisely because our lives are imagined by, you know, sort of a cisgender-centric society as being freakish or strange or unusual or abnormal or rare, and we're pushed to the margins. I think about it like the sun, you know, like the sun's coming up over the horizon and you're seeing it on the horizon of possibility because you put it, you know, out on the edge, you put it at the limit of visibility. So whenever that sun's coming up, you think that sun's coming up for the first time and nobody's ever seen that before. But, you know, I, I think the invisibility of a lot of trans lives is something that is in fact produced through oppression. So one of my favorite history books is actually written by a, a British lesbian who writes on masculine presenting people who were assigned female at birth. And the, the name of the book is called, Her Husband Was a Woman! Exclamation point. And Alison Oram is the name of the, um, the author. And mostly what that book is, it's a study of newspapers from the you know, Midlands of, of England over the course of much of the 20th century. And it keeps showing how the same story gets told over and over and over and over again. Every time a trans person is discovered as being in a relationship with another person. It's like, oh, it's like, it's the first time, you know, we've ever heard this story. Shock, amazement. It's like, who knew, you know, that gambling was going on in this establishment, you know, like in, in um, the film Casablanca. It's like the feigned surprise at the just constantly recurring story of trans people being outed in the press. It just happens all the time. I think trans history was there waiting to be discovered by anybody who was looking for it. And certainly, you know, there were people interested in trans history before I got involved in doing it. I mean, I really don't think it's, I certainly helped create a broader audience for it, but you know, I was standing on the shoulders of people who came before me. But I think one of the things that's happened is that the role of trans people in society has changed that before, I mean, we were very, so, so very stigmatized, ghettoized, and freaked that uh, it was very easy to ignore us. And I think a lot of the problems that we faced societally came about as a result of, you know, what I would call malignant neglect. If you weren't trans, nobody other than trans people gave a damn about trans people. And if they thought about us, they thought it was, it's like, oh, those poor, unfortunate, perhaps perverse 
weird, crazy people who mm, we can provide this medical treatment for them and it will allow them to have some kind of marginalized life, something that's, you know, better than nothing, even though they'll never be, you know, normal and whole and you know, whatever. It's very, you know, very pathologizing, very condescending. But mostly I think people just ignored us. And I think that started to change in the 90s. And it started to change largely because there were more trans people who they just thought about themselves in a new way. It had a lot to do with the queer movement, the AIDS crisis, of more and more people just saying like, screw it, you know, just like I want to be who I am. I'm going to be out. I want to be open. And, you know, I certainly think about myself as part of a wave or part of a cohort, part of a generation of trans people who were doing trans differently 30 some odd years ago. And now I think we are in the backlash, you know, we're in the backlash to the accomplishments of the past 30 years. So it's just kind of mind boggling to me that these two things in my life, being trans and being a historian and doing trans history, finds itself in the crosshairs of this much, much bigger historical moment that we're living inside right now. And I just, you know, sometimes it's it's overwhelming, honestly, to think about what I feel like I'm called upon to do by my community to sort of bear witness to the fact that gender variants, trans identities have a very long history. That this concept that we use all the time, gender, it's like, oh, that's a concept with a history. And it's like, it's not something that was invented by post-structuralist gender theorists in the 90s or, you know, by a trans lobby. It's like this very framework we have for thinking through the terminology of gender is something that is traceable back, you know, at least into the early 19th century. So it feels overwhelming at times because, you know, you, you can only say so many times, you know, trans, it isn't new. See, you know, look, I've got the receipts. It's like, look, there's an older, longer history. It's like, it's a, a persistently recurring way of being in societies around the world and throughout time. Just literally nothing new under the sun here. But to say that is really, it feels insufficient to the level of need that we are experiencing right now. And I just hope that being able to offer some kind of, you know, testimony or bear witness about the fact that we have a history is news that people can use about the past in some way that will empower and give them resources for the really dire struggle we are engaged in right now. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that you brought into public consciousness, and of course, through what we mentioned, the Emmy award-winning documentary, when we think about history and we think about our history, the foundational event that we often talk about is Stonewall. But one of the things that you highlight through your work is that the Compton's Cafeteria riot in San Francisco in 1966, I believe it was, predates Stonewall. And I'm wondering why you think we make Stonewall the pivot point versus Compton's? And how did that even come about? Like, how did we decide that we were going to prioritize Stonewall over this event that happened several years earlier? That is another great question. And the way that I think about the relationship of Stonewall, which most people know about, June 69 in Greenwich Village and the Compton's Cafeteria Riot, which is San Francisco Tenderloin, August 1966, where 
trans women fought back against the police, as well as even earlier incidents like the Dewey lunch counter protests in Philadelphia in 1964, the Cooper Donut riot in Los Angeles in 1959, that what we're seeing is an entire genre of kinds of events. Were there others? Probably, you know, Uh, but certainly I think at a small scale, it's like the friction points between community gathering spaces and police power, whether it's just bar raids or dance raids, whether or not it escalates into something that's as big as street fighting. You know, it's like it's all the same, the same kind of event. Why Stonewall, not Compton's in terms of occupying a big place in public memory and popular lore, I think there's a lot of reasons. Uh, One of them is that the incident that happened at Compton's was smaller. Uh, Compton's was a a 24-hour-a-day cafeteria in a poor inner-city neighborhood, the Tenderloin. But back in the 60s, it was mostly a sex worker ghetto. It's where transgender people were explicitly confined to living in the city. Compton's Cafeteria was a place that everybody in the neighborhood would come and hang out. It was kind of like a neutral ground, safe space, cheap, well-lighted place to get food in the middle of the night. Uh, And the cops would come in with some regularity to hassle the people who were sitting there. And one night, one of the queens they were trying to arrest in Compton's threw her coffee in the cop's face and all hell broke loose and it spilled out into street fighting. Apparently, it went on for a few days. I mean, there was a, a big event that first night with hundreds of people fighting with the cops in the streets and then gathering again over the next couple of nights and continuing to protest, but with less um, street fighting. And, you know, why don't we remember that? Partly because it was smaller. You know, it involved, I would say, a few hundred people, whereas Stonewall involved several thousands of people out in the streets. I think one of the other things is that even though we know the riot happened, we have firsthand you know, interviewees who talk about being there and everybody's story checks out and it everything about what's described about the riot is plausible in terms of time, place, manner, but there's no footage of it. It wasn't covered in the newspapers. Uh, it's kind of curious why it wasn't documented better at the time than it was. But the upshot is that because it wasn't documented, it's harder for people to remember it. It's like, and what happened at Stonewall? I mean, it's like Stonewall was you know, right down the street from the Village Voice. It's like it was covered in the New York Times. And even if people didn't, you know, pay a lot of attention to it right at first, you know, the legend certainly grew. There was a paper trail that people could follow. And Compton's did not leave quite the same kind of paper trail. The final thing I will say is that in San Francisco, when the Compton's Cafeteria riot happened, it happened in this moment of anger uh, about escalating police crackdowns on trans people in the Tenderloin. It happened around changing policies at this one particular restaurant. And when people, you know, basically said like, hey, you know, stop doing that and pushed back, there were actually some changes that happened. It's like, Policing practices changed, at least for a little while. 
after the riot, the city was a little bit more responsive to trans people who were seeking medical services. Like the the city, like public health clinics started offering support groups and hormone prescriptions for trans people. And I think partly because change happened at a small and local level, people felt like, all right, you know, we got some of what we were looking for. Whereas in New York, pretty much from the word go, Stonewall happened and there were people who had participated in the riot who thought, this is it. This is the beginning of the gay revolution, you know, the queer revolution. It's like, this is going to be like our Bastille Day, our Cinco de Mayo, our Fourth of July. Within like two weeks of the Stonewall riot, there were people who were organizing a year in advance to commemorate Stonewall in the summer of 1970. Oh, wow. That the movement culture, I think, was just at a different place in 1969 than it had been in 1966. There were people who were saying, like, this is going to be something that we can use for movement building. It's not a one-off event. And just like practically from the beginning, Stonewall was packaged as something to be remembered in the future as part of a movement to, to inspire social change. And it did. It's like, that's exactly what happened. Stonewall gets baked into public memory, even though the Compton's riot was a significant event. Uh, and even though both Stonewall and Compton's were part of a genre of kinds of events that are about clashes between police power and marginalized, subjugated urban populations. It was Stonewall that I think got the brass ring in terms of capturing public attention and visibility and that, you know, it's, it's, it's understandable to me how Stonewall came to stand in uh, for the idea of gay liberation. My last question for you is actually driven by something that you just said, which is the events that we say are turning points or that we choose to be turning points are actually the culmination of years or decades of work beforehand. And we are conditioned through history and then accelerated now by social media to think of change as being the turning point of events and singular events. To think of history as a stepladder of progress. And once you go up, you don't ever go back down. And one of the things I think that you did for me in getting us to think about the fact that these periods of change take place over long periods of time is that is it important for us to not think about the last 10 years as having been progress and then backsliding, but as a part of this kind of long walk, this sort of long march to our human rights in which there are going to be these variable moments, there are going to be setbacks, there are going to be advancements, but the most important thing is, is just to keep going. I mean, that was one of the things that, that came to me that like, is for us to have a larger lens about where we are and what it means. I think it's incredibly important to remember that history is not linear and progress is not inevitable. I, I think about how bad it was during the McCarthyite period in the U.S. You know, that, that post-World War II, there was a big anti-communist hysteria. There was the Lavender Scare. 
And people's lives were ruined just on the thought, the hint, the whiff that they might be queer or that they might be politically left-wing. Lives were damaged, you know, lives were lost, but as a society, we did get through that and the fever broke. I also think back to Reconstruction, and I think the history of post-Civil War Reconstruction is actually the more pertinent historical example right now. I mean, we fought a war in this country over the question of slavery, and the anti-slavery side won, and the North imposed rule on the South as a territory that was in insurrection. It barred former Confederates from holding office. It gave the franchise to Black men. There were Black elected officials. There were Black people in civil service. That there was this tremendous change that took place because of the Civil War. And almost immediately, you started seeing former Confederate generals, Nathan Bedford of Memphis being, you know, the prime example, that they just started a guerrilla war against the U.S. government occupying the South. It's like, and that guerrilla army was called the KKK. And over the course of 10 years, it's like they were able to roll back Reconstruction. That's right. Uh, by 1876, a decade after the Civil War, you're starting to see the end of Reconstruction as a federal policy. You're starting to see the beginnings of Jim Crow legislation in the South. And, you know, within another decade or so, it's like you have the creation of an apartheid state in the U.S. That was after we fought a war. That was after we fought a war to abolish slavery. It's like you have it reestablished by other means. And it took what, three generations? It took until after World War II for another effective movement to begin that like resulted in civil rights. And it's, it's like when, when I think about the length and depth and violence of that struggle and how long it took to undo what the ending of Reconstruction reestablished. That's where I, I turn for inspiration. You know, I, I say this in my book, Transgender History, as a, as a white trans person, as I think about what does it mean to like live long-term as a community and as a people who experience political violence. It's like, I feel like, you know, you have to turn to indigenous and African-American history in particular in this country to learn what survival and resilience looks like. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of wisdom. I, I don't want to uh, minimize what's happening right now because, you know, there are powerful political forces in the present who are just saying out loud, trans people should not exist, trying to define trans life out of existence. There's a kind of legislative and administrative violence that is targeting us that is truly dire. And we should not minimize that at all. It is just high time for us to get very real about the situation that we are in. If you are not already real about it, that we should learn from historical examples in the past of how other communities have dealt with this level of violence and oppression. And maybe as a, as a final thing to say, I think a lot about a quote from the, the philosopher 
Friedrich Nietzsche, who wrote this like essay I teach all the time called uh, On the Uses and Abuses of History for the Living. And he lays out these different kinds of history. Yeah, there's a sort of monumental history that great and powerful people, you know, want to do. They just want to create a, a monument to themselves. And some people are just nostalgic. They just want to look at the past and find something familiar there. But then he says, it is only those who are crushed by a present circumstance and who are determined at all costs to throw off the yoke of their oppression, who have any need for a critical relationship to their past. And that, to me, just sums up what my own political philosophy is, what my stance is as a historian, why I do the work that I do as a historian, because I do want to have that critical relationship to the past that helps me and others in my situation in the present throw off the yoke of our oppression. Well, Susan, thank you so much. I think there's so much that you gave to contextualize this moment in our lives. I don't think that it's hyperbole at all to compare where we are with what happened in Reconstruction. I think Americans often erase large parts of our history in order to create a narrative that makes everyone feel better about the history, but the history doesn't go anywhere even if we don't acknowledge it and comes back in different forms as we're seeing now. So I think that hearing from you right now is really necessary and just appreciate you for your life's work and for coming on our program. Well, thanks for having a program to come on to and for doing the work that that you do. It's a team sport that we're engaged in. That was historian Dr. Susan Stryker. Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I can't wait to get into the conversation with professor and cultural theorist C. Riley Snorton. Dr. Snorton holds several impressive and long academic titles. Hang in there. Here we go. He is the F. O. Matheson Visiting Professor of Gender and Sexuality at Harvard. They are also the Mary R. Morton Professor in the Departments of English Language and Literature, Race, Diaspora, and Indigeneity, the Center for Gender and Sexuality Studies, and the College at the University of Chicago. Dr. Storton is the author of Black on Both Sides, 
A Racial History of Trans Identity, which was the first publication to weave together the study of race and trans identity. It won many prestigious awards, including the Lambda Literary Award for Transgender Nonfiction and the William Sanders Scarborough Prize. They also wrote Nobody is Supposed to Know, which examines negative perceptions of Black men who have sex with men without identifying as gay or queer. But Dr. Snorton isn't resting on his laurels. He is currently at work on his next monograph, which will look at the presence of swamps in racial practices and formations in the Americas. He is also the co-editor of Saturation, Race, Art, and the Circulation of Value, as well as GLQ, a journal of gay and lesbian studies. Dr. Storton, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Amara. Thanks for bearing with the long titles, too. It's so exciting to be in conversation with you. Thank you. Thank you. Tongue-twisting, but well-earned. Oh, thanks. I mean, I personally think that you are an icon. I don't know if you think of yourself that, but I think that you are certainly an academic icon. And for me, kind of the power of your work was crystallized in Black on both sides. And one of the things that you do is to raise this link between Blackness and transness rooted in history and conversations around gender and elevate it to scholastic levels, which is no small feat. I'm wondering before we even talk about some of the powerful characters and ideas embedded in your work. If you can just tell us about what it was like to try to do all of that within an academic sense in which there are usually these very clear lines about who matters, what matters, what stories are valid as history and those which aren't. Absolutely. And also, I wish that... um one could hear blushing because uh, to start with calling me an icon, I feel so deeply flattered by that. Yeah, I mean, I think working on Black on Both Sides, there are really kind of two aspects of the story to tell in terms of thinking about the context in which I was writing it. On one hand, I was working in gender sexuality studies department, and I was often getting emails from colleagues asking, oh, like, what should I assign if I want to be also thinking about transness and Blackness? And certainly there were articles or book chapters that I could assign. But in many ways, I was like, you know, this is a book-length project. I'd come out of writing Nobody's Supposed to Know, and it was out maybe a year or so. And I was looking to a next project, which I initially thought I was going to be writing about blues, actually, for my second project. But I was encouraged by a colleague to not wait. I knew that I wanted to write a Black trans studies book and I was able to embrace that that was the next project no matter what. I think the other context is that I was materially writing this book while I was working at Cornell University. And so I have a lot of memories of writing the book at all times of early morning after moving around the town of Ithaca and feeling very singular in terms of my own identifications and embodiment. And so I would often refer to the book as like a Black trans friend. But I also, while writing it, felt like I couldn't write it without in some ways being in community. And so, you know, it was also a time where I was making sure that I was showing up in movement space as well for my 
own well-being, but also because I was just like, this is a project that's ostensibly about like Black trans uh, survival, Black trans community. And if I am feeling always outside of that, you know, there's a real impact uh, and cost for the project as well. Was it hard for you to get a Scholastic Press to take this book seriously? Really? Not really. You know, I went with the same press that I wrote my first book with. And so I had an editor and a relationship with an editor there that was really fruitful and generative. Um, You know, I, I feel like he was supportive from the very beginning and it moved through the the academic uh, publishing process really smoothly. In fact, we could talk about it. Like I had less issues finding a a cover for Black on Both Sides than I did trying to get a cover for Nobody is Supposed to Know. And I wouldn't say that it's necessarily that, you know, people are more X than Y, but rather that there was a, a kind of smoothness to the process of this book coming out that I think could probably sound really surprising. With regards to the book itself, one of the things that I think might surprise people is that you chart the rise of what we would call transness, but expansive gender, to the 19th century for Black people, well outside of the memory of anyone alive. And I think that that fact would surprise many people who believe that transness, and we've seen this even in Black communities recently, that transness is something that's popped up since 2014. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, no, exactly, right? Like, So I think in some ways, part of the project of diminishing or of making transness seem like it's not, it doesn't hold the kind of importance that it holds for people's lives is to say, oh, this is some brand new stuff. And, you know, certainly there are debates, you know, within the academy about whether or not transness begins with the gender clinics in the mid 20th century, or if we can say that there is something like transness that exists since people were relating (laughs) to each other, right? And so even the 19th century isn't like an origin, but just the place that Black on both sides begins. And in many ways, it was also wanting to really think about transness in a context of racialized gender. Mm -hmm. In thinking about, you know, gender as having always a racial component, the 19th century is such a, ooh, just, it is wide open for all kinds of narratives that help to concretize that gender was never really a kind of binary project, that gender was always modified by uh, systems of racial classification. And so when I say systems of racial classification, I'm, I'm both indexing the scientific, I'm indexing the plantocratic, I'm indexing the kind of social, cultural, geopolitical And so starting in the 19th century, starting with narratives of uh, Black people who were captive in the United States and the various ways their captive flesh, their captive personhoods were used in the matter of science, such as in the founding of U.S. gynecology, and also the ways that captive Black people made use of their bodies, changing their genders in order to escape enslavement, that felt like 
two incredibly generative ways of opening up a project that says, like, you know, transness has a racialized history or race is the history and present of transness. One of the things that you do, and I think it ties, it's often not done by many people, even in modern conversations, is that you actually link conversations around gender identity, gender, and race together. And of course, as you said, the period of enslavement is a backdrop for the early part of your book. And one of the things that might surprise people is the way in which you foreground the brutal experiments that Dr. Sims, who was the first OBGYN, did on enslaved Black women. And this person's the founder of what we call gynecology. And one of the things that that I think is really powerful is that there's actually no way to tell the story of Black women Black cis women without understanding the intersection of the ways in which white patriarchal notions of gender work and how that intersects with gender identity and race as well. And I think that that would surprise people that you foreground those stories in a book about being Black and trans. By starting with Sims, I wanted to open the question of how it is that captive Black women served as the material for Sims's emplacement in history as the father of American gynecology. And yet the way that those experiments played out give us a lot of information about how gender as a kind of dichotomy of manhood and womanhood was not able to be the context for those women that he experimented upon. And if we sit with that as a key context and conceit of how gynecology came into existence in this country, we're also engaging how gender and the idea of gender as as both multiple and also as changeable is deeply related to uh, how Blackness and the kind of history of enslavement gave rise to ideals about gender. And of course, in many ways, the ways that Blackness gives rise to an ideal of gender is often by being relegated to its negation, the negation of that. Yeah. And I think that one of the really powerful things that we have to grasp and understand is that the notions of manhood and womanhood And their role in then conferring personhood, that is to say, the ability to be recognized with some status in community and ultimately humanity, that those were, for a very long time in American history, very narrow definitions, right? They did not apply to Black cis women, for example, until 1965, right? That was the first time where Black cis women gained equal rights of all other cis women in the United States, for example. And that the notions of manhood and womanhood that we have were actually designed as much to exclude rather than to define. And so therefore to use those notions as the basis for who does not fit in society is actually a hollow enterprise, it seems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's key to think about gender itself as a colonial project. And 
I wanted to highlight the ways that it's a colonial project. It's a project that has been instrumentalized and maybe even refined in kind of these brutal projects like slavery. But it's also desire that I had in writing the book too, that's like, and so within Blackness, given that gender is not something that we quote unquote own, then how might we also look at narratives where people were using this thing called gender towards their survival. That's the other side of thinking about the coloniality of gender for me. When you hear politicians, and increasingly there are certain voices that stand out as now, quote, guardians of womanhood, close quote. Mm. This whole conversation should be in quotes. But, you know, and I'm thinking about like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and these other people who say that what they are doing is rooting their conversations about gender and quote the reality that we know what a woman is and what a woman isn't. And one of the things that that strikes me about that is that is that those notions, as you say, are grounded in coloniality and were made up. Right. You know, it's so fascinating the idea of trying to, as you say, concretize something that's actually not concrete. Exactly. Yeah. I mean I think whenever I hear the argument of reality being used against trans people. I'm like, oh, it's it's that you want to perpetuate the naturalization of certain power structures existing and continuing to perpetuate themselves into the future. That's actually what you mean by reality. What is the thing you think that's missing from our understanding of history and the history of gender by not centering Black transness in that? by having those stories be overlooked, marginalized, not taken seriously? Like, what are we losing? Certainly, I think for Black trans people, we miss some of the stories of how we've survived in circumstances that feel close to our present moment and in circumstances that might seem even more difficult. I think in terms of thinking about what the histories of Black trans people might lend to a reshaping of the political conversation or the dominant political and policy conversation of this moment. I think one of the kind of key things that I've underlined about the folks that appear in this book is that they were all living in times where to be Black was illicit in some sense, right? To be Black and to be perceived as free was seen as a problem. Uh, To be trans was illegal. And so the fact that folks made lives for themselves, lives that were full, is also a way of saying, like, you know, our Blackness and our transness cannot be ended by the law. And at the same time, there are ways that we should look at and should absolutely insist upon the decriminalization of Black and trans people, the end of discrimination and oppression of Black and trans people. And more and more, as I sit with these kind of conversations and questions, I am in agreement with, you know, Black queer feminist abolitionists who are saying part of the issue is that we actually have to make the matter of gender not a subject of law. And I'm like, yeah, like Hmm. rather than the kind of back and forth around protection, what if it's like the government actually has no say in questions of gender? 
how might we be able to chart our lives differently, looking at some of the, the folks who have lived Black trans lives in the past and see what other forms of protection, safety, the kind of conditions of flourishing might be possible. It also seems to me that one of the things that we also lose is a complete idea for what Blackness is. Because as long as Black trans histories are excluded in the way that we're talking about, it also means that they're excluded from the conversation, the memory of the shaping of African-American identity in the United States. And it opens the door for the continued otherization of Black trans people, even in Black communities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think both in terms of everyday forms of exclusion and the sense of how people show up in uh, the, their neighborhoods and in terms of the glaring hole in how one might talk about a Black radical tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, Black trans femmes have been at the forefront of movements around a whole host of things, work conditions, being able to uh, be outside. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> I look at some of the folks that I write about in the 1950s. A Black woman named Ava Betty Brown, who lived in Chicago, who was just standing outside in the middle of the day and gets picked up by the police. And when she goes to the courthouse and they, you know, they take her up at, at court and they're like, you know, here are the charges against you. And basically her response is like, you know, everybody in my community knows that I'm a woman. And I actually, it's on you to to try to prove to me and my community otherwise. That's a powerful narrative. It happens to be that actually, and, and this doesn't end up in Black on Both Sides, but this is how her story continues to unfold. Uh, she, she does get uh, put in prison on another charge at a later time. And when she comes out, uh, she actually wages a case against the police for their, their brutal treatment, their undue harassment. And that case also starts to play out in Chicago press over, um, over the course of several weeks as, um, as, as the case is made known. Now, I think she gets a small settlement out of that and wasn't necessarily even the kind of amount of money that was going to dramatically change her, her conditions at that time. But I say this to say, like, you know, the ways that Black folks and Black radical folks have built a analysis around the police, an analysis of abolition, is also deeply rooted in the histories and the stories of Black trans people who've come well before us. Continuing this idea of the centrality of transness to Blackness, the title of your book is also the title of a most deaf album. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very first most deaf album, if my memory serves me correct. And, you know, a part of your own life is a deep interest in pop culture and, you know, work on media and media images. I'm wondering if that was intentional. I have a hunch that it might mm-hmm. be. If it's intentional, and if so, what point were you making about? Where we are in modernity with the name of Most of Album, which I think is from the late 90s, yeah. to, to what you were writing about, which is this history. Yeah, yeah, no, it was absolutely intentional. Nobody's Supposed to Know is also a TLC lyric. I don't get away from 
the music that I'm listening to and I find it incredibly, uh, like it is the shaping, it's the context of the writing that I do. I'm always listening to music. Black on Both Sides, I do love that album. And I also was thinking about what does trans mean? It means uh, a crossing of something. And part of what I wanted to get at with with Black on Both Sides too is like, yeah, you, you never are outside of Blackness. Like transness is within Blackness, is Black on both sides. And certainly I wanted to give Yazine Bey a shout out by moving with the lyrics of mathematics in the preface as a way of also talking about how too often Black trans life is reflected upon at the site of its spectacular death. It's a kind of unholy arithmetics of measuring Black trans life and Black trans community. There's always, though, this tension between popular culture, Black popular culture being informed by Black trans communities and at the same time, a lack of acknowledgement and exclusion of those extremely rich cultural contributions to everything from fashion to dance movements to language to, to you name it. That was also a part of the display of Black people of various gender identities being able to express themselves post-slavery was through fashion and the dramatic presentation of fashion. Absolutely. Fashion, you know, is such a key component of thinking about Black trans creative genius. But I think we can also see it in a whole host of forms, including what you do, including musicians that are out, art world, film. I think it would not be an overstatement to say, you know, that it would be difficult to look at any creative industry and not uh, be able to think about the impact of a or many Black trans people involvement in it. And lastly, as we look forward, one of the things that I get from being in conversation with you is actually a sense of hope. And maybe it's because you do take a long view and have an understanding of the broad sweep of history. And as you say, people being able to make space for themselves and their communities, even at the darkest of times, even times far darker than than we're in. Is that true? Do you think that history, um, especially our history, does that? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think that the one key thing is that no one's saying that right now isn't tough. It is tough. But I think the problem is, is if we think about it as like singularly so. And so as someone who enjoys spending time in archives, I do feel a sense of hope. But I would also say like a deep sense of commitment that comes from knowing that, you know, it is our inheritance as Black trans people to survive and to do so in ways that are creative and communal. And that is something that we think and share across the diaspora. Well, Riley, thank you so much for your work and for coming on to talk about it and just for the foresight that you have in tying together so many of these strands. And I don't know if if popular music drives the titles of your next book, maybe maybe a next one will be called Pound Town. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you might make that academic and scholarly, but I uh, love it. I love it. You know. Oh, 
thank you so much for this conversation. And, you know, you're really driving me to um, get into my albums from Sissy Bounce in New Orleans, because so much of this next project has a lot to do with New Orleans. So let me see where I can go with some of those album titles for sure. Pound Town, I, I, I put it down as a note. Thank you. <laughs> amazing, amazing. So you got something out of this interview. So much, so much, actually. That is academic and scholar C. Riley Snorton. Thank you for joining me on the Transflash podcast. Now listen all the way through to the end of the show for something extra. First, though, special thanks to Crammy Kramer for giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Crammy Kramer says, Relatable, reliable, and inspiring content. I wish everyone listened to this podcast. Thank you for all of your important work. Crammy Kramer, we agree with you that everyone should be listening to this podcast, and we thank you so much for your kind words. If you listening public out there want to help us drown out all the trolls flooding our apple podcast reviews make sure to go ahead and leave your own five-star review it's got to be five stars you might just hear it on the show the Translash podcast is produced by Translash media the Translash team includes oliver ash klein and aubrey calloway xander adams is a contributing producer to the show and our sound engineer Brennan Beckwith is our social media producer. Digital strategy is handled by Daniela Capistrano. The music you heard was composed by Ben Draghi and also courtesy of ZZK Records. The Translash podcast is made possible by the support of foundations and listeners like you. So what am I looking forward to? Well, Next week, I will be in Washington, D.C., hosting the National Center for Trans Equality Awards at their annual kind of event in D.C. And that's just going to be fun and exciting. First, we'll be all in community together, and it's always fun when we come together. And then secondly, just to be around people who are going to be inspiring and recognized for their work. So it's going to be a good time. I'm still putting together the fits. So make sure that y'all go to the Instagram, my gram, the translash gram to see what I'm wearing. Because <laughs> I don't know yet. I know the dress, but I don't know anything else. So it's going to be fun. Uh, but yeah, looking forward to that. <laughs>